Hey friends, after a uh, couple week hiatus for the Deep Talks Theology Podcast, I'm so excited for today's episode because it really gets at even the crux of what this podcast has been named, Deep Talks Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. And today we're going to be exploring why there is no theology-less science. That there is no science, there is no scientific interpretation, there is no scientific explanation, and there certainly isn't any scientific application that doesn't have a theological component. So I'm excited to explore this together today. Let's dive in to today's podcast. You're listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. This is part four in our series about theology science. If you haven't yet, I encourage you to listen back to parts one through three. I'm your host, Paul Anlinger. Enjoy today's podcast. The late theoretical physicist, the great Stephen Hawking, in his brief history in time, wrote, what is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe. This quote, I believe, beautifully captures the innate human longing to find meaning within this puzzling universe we've all found ourselves experiencing. This drive to understand, to name, to corroborate and falsify our experience of reality is all part of the comprehensive meaning-making endeavor of the human experience. Everybody does this. We, we all participate in this meaning-making endeavor, which ultimately longs to have this ultimate question answered. And while Hawking frames the question in a way that is meaningful to him and his discipline, this question of what is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to, be, to describe could also be rephrased as a question like, why is there something instead of nothing at all? What is the ultimate meaning and explanation for existence? We could reframe this question so many different ways, but ultimately any rational human being, uh, someone again that you know has full access to their cognitive functions, uh, they're wrestling. We wrestle with this question. We participate in what uh, Robert Keegan, educational psychologist, describes and calls meaning-making. And we do this through varied and yet interconnected disciplines. Some of these disciplines that are distinct, but yet they're intrinsically linked together. They're interconnected. Some of these disciplines in the meaning-making endeavor include things like theology, philosophy, arts, the sciences, all of these things are part of our interconnected pursuit of truth, the interconnected pursuit to make sense of our experience of life. In today's podcast, I not only want to explore the interdependent nature of theology and science, but I also want to argue and contend that theological presuppositions are not only foundational to our trust in the scientific methodology, but that theological narratives, that is, the, the theological stories we believe, shape both descriptive interpretations and prescriptive narratives, prescriptive stories derived or claimed to be derived from scientific inquiry. Simultaneously, the discoveries of scientific inquiry can and should affect our theological narratives as part of this interconnected web of personal meaning-making. So in today's podcast, I, I, I'm not going to necessarily provide a, like an apologetic answer to Hawking's questions, and, and I, I, I don't intend to do that in this particular podcast, an apologetic for historic Trinitarian Christian theology to be the ultimate answer to Hawking's questions. I fully believe that. But today, 
Today's podcast is going to be focused on, uh, on trying to demonstrate that the very attempt to answer Hawking's question, or to even argue that his question is unanswerable, is doing theology. Hawking's question is a theological question, and any attempt to answer that, any attempt to say that it's unanswerable, is doing theology. Lastly, what I'm going to argue for today and present is a case for what we could call a transformationalist approach to integration between theology and science. And I'll talk more about that later in the podcast as to what I mean by a transformationalist approach to integrating science, theology, and actually all of our meaning-making disciplines. So, you know, very early on in uh, church history, there was this significant debate that was happening between Augustine and a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius was arguing that humans were born into this world in a neutral state, a, a state of not being inherently good or inherently evil. And, uh, and while the church condemned that as heresy uh, and said, no, we aren't born into a neut- neutral state. In fact, we, we are born with this like predisposition towards sin, this predisposition towards selfishness. We have a different kind. I would, I would argue we have a different kind of Pelagianism today. And this is the sort of Pelagianism guilty of many modernist theologians and scientists who fail to see that they are not born into the world in a position of what I could call epistemological neutrality. That is to say that we are not born into the world in this position of having a neutral perspective, which we can, in a neutral point of view, assess facts, assess data, and come up with a uh, perfectly objective conclusion on what is true from what is false. The presence of sin, this is again part of our, our Christian tradition, the presence of sin eliminates that possibility. We are not born into the world not just as a, a, in a state of neutrality in regards to giving into temptation or not temptation. We are born not in a neutral environment uh, when it comes to how we assess and interpret the world around us. I believe we must confess that all meaning-making inquiry, whether we pick up a history book, uh, and I love history, my undergrad was in history, whether we're picking up a a scientific article, or even when we we pick up uh, the scriptures, that all of our meaning-making inquiry including science, which we're going to focus on today, is done from this pre-existing but ever-evolving convictional location. I want to explain what that term convictional location means. Our convictional location is where we might be situated in our particular culture with our unique history, both individual history, but the history of our culture. Our convictional location is shaped by our experiences. It's shaped by our knowledge or lack of knowledge. It's shaped by what we have read. Uh, It's even shaped a little bit by our own biology. We have personality quirks. We have certain predispositions that might affect how we see the world. Uh, Imagine for a moment that uh, you have climbed to the top of a mountain, and as you look out upon the world, you get a wonderful view of what the world around you looks like. But let's say somewhere else, maybe several miles away, someone else is uh, standing on a different mountain. You guys may, in fact, be surveying a similar land, but what you're going to find is that based on your particular location where you're situated, you're going to have an experience, a subjective experience of reality 
that is bound to your location. You can't see what that person sees, and that person can't see what you're seeing on the mountain. I think part of our Christian tradition in acknowledging that we are experiences are our very selves we are we are tainted by this presence of sin in the world should help us acknowledge that our perspectives of the world may need correction i think this is actually at the heart of the gospel whether it was preached by john the baptist or of course in the culmination of jesus's ministry the message was repent And repent meant to change the way that you think. So we have the presence of sin, which skewers are the lens uh, by which we uh, view the world. But not just the presence of sin. We just have, by our very human nature, we are not omnipresent. And so we are situated in a time and a culture And this isn't to say that all of this stuff is bad, but it is to acknowledge that we have a limited perspective, a perspective that's limited based on our location. And that location can change. It's not that we just stay on one mountain. In fact, you know, we may be climbing up a mountain, we may be traveling and encountering and maybe having conversations with people on different convictional locations that go, well, I actually saw this down in that valley and you might have missed it from your perspective. Our convictional location, our worldviews change as we age, as we grow, as we have different experiences of the world. But we must confess, I believe we must confess, that each one of us have a convictional location. Scientific meaning-making happens from a convictional location. There's a popular myth, a, a, a myth that's, that's quite popular in our culture today, a myth that uh, naturalism, and we've, that's a term I've mentioned throughout these podcasts, even going back to the first series I did on, on Jordan Peterson, uh, naturalism is this view, again, that all there is in our experience of reality is matter and nothing more. Some people might call it physicalism. Others might call it materialism. But this is a popular viewpoint, and it's what many people mean when they, they claim uh, they are, they are uh, have a, a secular perspective on a particular academic discipline. What they're saying is that I adhere to the um, principles, the, I adhere to the dogmas of metaphysical naturalism. But guys, metaphysical naturalism is a convictional location. Metaphysical naturalism is a philosophy. It ha- it is a theology. And so one of the myths that I, I want to help dispel here is that um, that people that go, I, I you know, we talk about, uh, let's talk about Nacho Libre, right? Uh, the classic film, how many how many uh, Oscars did that that great piece of uh, American film win? But uh, Nacho's buddy, who I am now, my son is going to be so upset with me that I'm forgetting his name. Right, his 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 famous line throughout the movie is, "I don't believe in God, I believe in science." Right, and it's funny because uh, in our culture, many people talk like that. Right. Uh, that you are pitted this choice between science, which is from a neutral, unbiased, and um, untainted perspective, while uh, faith, theology, um, religion has these uh, religion-colored glasses that skewers their perception of the world. I think what we all should admit is that, yes, our convictional location, the worldviews that we we have, um, are not just uh, absorbed through some, you know, a pure channel by which we get unfiltered uh, input, but that we do have this filter and this filter that is shaped by our experiences, our biology, and those things that we talked about. But it's also true of those who are claiming some sort of neutral position. 
I want to lay out here for you guys some of the, the history of modern science in the Western world and show that modern science's foundation was based on um, forefathers that had particular convictional locations that included a, an explicit theological element. So we could name a couple people, really the, the epistemological forefathers of modern science in the Western world, Isaac Newton and Rene Descartes. Those two men provided the, the theological foundation for what we could call now scientific rationalism. This rationalism was based on theological premises derived from their Christian faith. Now, there has been some in history that have, in sort of a revisionist way, looked back on the work of Isaac Newton, and they say, well, you know, Isaac Newton practiced a, a sort of functional naturalism in his methodology that enabled him to establish such historic scientific insights. But this is really lazy scholarship, really poor scholarship that, re that results from pretty basic readings of, uh, of Newton's work, uh, where they might note that in uh, Principia, for example, that there is sparse mention of God or very little theological terminology in that seminal work. But in Newton's own cosmological observations about the ordered nature of the universe, Newton was convinced that physics was the effective choice rather than chance. This choice for Newton was the initial act of, quote, an all-powerful, infinitely dynamic creator of the Bible, who wasn't, by the way, the clockmaker god the deists later imagined from his work, but rather the god that, here's again another quote, intervened in the workings of the solar system so that it may stay in equilibrium. Now, obviously, physics has evolved since the days of Newton, whose Theological writings actually total over 2.5 million words over the course of six decades. Newton wrote a lot about theology. And, side note, that's not to say that uh, all of Newton's theology was uh, perfect or sound, but it is to say that theological convictions were what, in, were what was informing Newton's scientific pursuit. Newton's scientific rationalism, this notion that we have an observable universe that's filled with processes of cause and effect that we can rationally observe and make rational deductions from, as well as Rene Descartes' subject-object distinction, are still the foundational presuppositions of modern science. This scientific rationalism that, again, is so central to modern science today, and it was built upon Newton and Descartes' theology. They had a theological foundation that was informing their perspective that there was an orderly universe of cause and effect, and that for Descartes there was a distinction between subjects and objects. These are foundational presuppositions still of modern science, championed by popular modern scientists such as Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson has actually said on numerous occasions that he considers Newton, Isaac Newton, to be the greatest man to have ever lived. And yet he rejects Newton's theology and considers that, quote, invoking a deity, end quote, when there is no natural explanation, he considers that to be an excusable act, inexcusable act of ignorance. Religion, quote, uh, from from a Neil deGrasse Titan, religion, quote, does not belong in the science classroom. I would contend that what Tyson is arguing is that he believes that all proper science must be done from a location devoid of theology. But he himself seems oblivious to his own theological commitments to metaphysical naturalism. Metaphysical naturalism is a non-neutral convictional location. 
It has a theology. For Newton, there was a sort of narrative coherence between his theological conviction and an intentional creator who, to steal Hawking's phrase, breathes fire into the equations and thus brings about a a rational, discoverable universe and the subsequent conviction of the trustworthiness of the scientific method. To put it another way, Newton's theology held a high view of general revelation. Similarly, Neil deGrasse Tyson also has a high view of general revelation, though obviously he himself would never call it that. But he expresses that in his firm belief in the trustworthiness of the scientific method. But yet his own metaphysical naturalism and his belief in mechanical determinism, that is to say that we are stuck in a uh, near infinite um, chain of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, and that all we are doing right now are, are acting out a previous cause that can be linked to the Big Bang and maybe even before that to the multiverse and whatever comes before that. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson believes in this sort of mechanical determinism. His metaphysical naturalism and belief in mechanical determinism don't provide a logical narrative for rationalism. It's illogical to believe that in a world of random cause and effect where everything is determined, it is illogical to believe that logic is even worth anything. Why couldn't we just think that what we're thinking right now is simply the result of a previous cause that we had no control over? I think I've talked about this earlier, but one of the problems, again, with metaphysical naturalism is that you can't have a rational scientific process. You can, but if you are, you're borrowing from some other theological and philosophical convictions that inform a world where uh, cause leads to effect and where you can actually observe that. If everything is determined, if everything is mechanically determined, like dominoes falling... Uh, then we can't actually say that our observations of the universe could be true or false. They just simply are. They're just simply an effect. So this is why I, I see there being a theological and philosophical problem with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who has this high view of what, again, Christians would say is general revelation. But he has demonstrated an inconsistency between his affirmation of a ordered and coherent universe, but doesn't have the theological foundation to um, properly build upon that belief in the trustworthiness of the scientific method. My goal in bringing up like Isaac Newton and maybe doing a little comparison between Isaac Newton's high view of general revelation being supported by other theological convictions and the inconsistency between Tyson's high view of rational thought, a.k.a. general revelation, and uh, the inconsistency between his high view of that and the lack of a theological foundation isn't to, you know, do some apologetic for Newton's theology. But it's simply to show that Tyson and Newton have attempted to answer Stephen Hawking's question. The ultimate question. For Tyson, hypothetically, he responds with uh, the answer of nothing is behind it all. Or maybe, to be fair, as I've heard in interviews, we, we maybe we could never know what is behind it all. That would be his answers to Hawking's great question. And that's an example of a theological conviction that locates him in a particular convictional location. Neil deGrasse Tyson, though I love him, I love watching, um, oh gosh, what's his show now? I'm, I, <laughs> you're like, yeah, you really love him. You can't remember his show. Is it Science Talk or Star Talk? I love watching him. I, uh, he's a good follow on Twitter. He's uh, an engaging and... Um, 
the, the Cosmos series that uh, he did had some, you know, he's an engaging guy to listen to, and I, I really enjoy listening to him. So this isn't some uh, making Neil deGrasse Tyson into a boogeyman, but just to highlight him as an example, Neil deGrasse Tyson is not doing science or interpreting science from a neutral location. Science and theology are inextricably intertwined. Now, you might be saying, Paul, why, why are you saying that to answer Hawking's question of what is it that, that breathes fire into the equations is a, a theological question? I'm going to explain that a little bit now. The medieval theologian Anselm argued that God was, quote, that which no greater can be conceived. While he and subsequent scholastic theologians such as Aquinas used this argument as a, a philosophical proof for the validity of Christian theism, I'm going to use uh, in a slightly different way to create maybe a, a variant application of this argument. Now, if I can, I want to perhaps reword um, Anselm's argument here. And to give it a little different spin, let's put it this way. And I'm going to use some philosophical terminology here, so uh, I'll try to do some explanation afterwards. But let's rephrase Anselm's argument a different way. Let's put it this way. That which individuals conceive of as the ultimate source, prime reality, or the fundamental necessity by which all contingencies derive their origination is what they call God. Or put it another way, still the highest ideal that gives interpretive meaning to one's life is their God. Now, I'm not saying that as uh, whatever anybody thinks of, again, as their, their highest ideal that gives interpretive meaning to all their life, the thing that they give adoration and worship to, if it is uh, NFL football, which is, for many people, their highest ideal, the highest thing that gives interpretive meaning to their life, for some it's money. I'm not saying that that actually is God, but it serves functionally in their life as their God. In the same way, in any sort of theological or philosophical tradition, where one says, this is the ultimate source of reality or the base layer of reality. This is the, this is the necessary by which all contingencies derive their origination from, is their God. It is the thing that they, they would assign as, this is the source of all reality. So, for example, for a, a metaphysical naturalist, a physicalist, a materialist, if you will, it is matter or the universe, or maybe the multiverse for some, that is their god. It's the thing that always was. It's the thing that is the fundamental layer of reality. It is the thing by which they can conceive of no higher. Uh, perhaps for the, the new ager, for the panpsychic, uh, it is consciousness. Uh, maybe for other variations of new, new age gurus, it is the self. Naming God in each tradition and worldview could go on and on. Um, and even maybe there's been some really helpful analysis and critiques over the last, you know, really a few decades, but even more recently in the work of um, uh, Charles Taylor, but also in the work of um, Calvin College philosopher James K.A. Smith, who's done an excellent series, the Cultural Liturgies series, which I really recommend checking out, where he argues that uh, the liturgy patterns of our life, the things that we do with our life, the things that we practice habitually are a statement of what is actually valuable to us and those continual statements of our life of this is what's valuable, this is what's valuable, actually point to what is people's gods. What is the thing that's at the top of their list of, uh, of things to worship? Great stuff. That's sort of a side note. But the, 
the thing we want to explore here is how does one go about deriving their answer to this question? The answer to what is the necess- the necessity, the necessary, what is the, the being with a capital B by which all other beings derive their being from? What is the highest thing which um, anyone could con- can conceive of? And people do this, whether with conscious intentionality, like I think you and I are trying to do as we wrestle with theology and we're trying with conscious intentionality to understand the, the nature of God better and to, to see him at work in the world. Or maybe some of you are coming to this podcast again as just you know, uh, seekers or in different religious traditions and you're, you're trying to understand or maybe compare Christianity to what you grew up in. Some of you might be doing this again with conscious intentionality, but great many people uh, passively uh, just receive a particular set of answers about what is it that gives, uh, breathes fire into the equations, or what is it that's behind it all, or what is the foundational uh, layer of reality by which all of the reality is derived. You know, some people are just passive receptors of particular stories and worldviews. Either way, whether you're doing this with unconscious, with conscious intentionality or just passive receptivity, you are still a participant in the theological venture. You're still a participant in this venture of trying to understand or to name God or to better um, understand God's character and nature. As I observed earlier in the case of Newton, Isaac Newton, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, their, their answer to that ultimate theological question and the process by which they went about deriving their answer is, is intertwined with the rest of their meaning-making schema. Their, one's doctrine of God, as in that idea by which no greater thing can personally be conceived, not only informs their scientific methodology, but it also provides the interpretive framework for assigning language to what one is attempting to scientifically describe. Not only is theology a central part of the interpretive framework by which we assign particular language to scientific descriptions of how things are, The language we employ towards scientific prescriptions for how things ought to be, as in the case of maybe psychology, for example, is also a theological endeavor. Now, it's at this point where maybe a a case study might be helpful. And I, I want to explore someone who is very central to the contemporary debates about theology and science. He's someone that's revered as almost a saint by uh, many metaphysical naturalists and sadly regarded uh, probably too harshly as almost like an antichrist to, to many evangelicals in the U.S. And I I want to explore the theology of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin's own theology does not easily classify into any of these two contemporary camps. He doesn't neatly fit into being a, a metaphysical naturalist or an atheist, and he certainly doesn't neatly fit into being a, an evangelical Christian. He, he doesn't fit any of those two contemporary camps. Darwin's convictional location was not theologically neutral. And that theological location, along with the other particularities of his context, affected the language he used to describe his scientific observations. Darwin came from a family of industrialists who worked with machinery, machinery that operated very much in accord with Newton's own science of orderly cause and effect. In the mid to late 19th century, early 
we could call them proto computers were being developed by people like uh, Charles Babbage, who who claimed that the millions of self-running operations within these machines that could be programmed to repeat a task and then switch to another task and and back again were analogously the the right way to consider what miracles actually are in this closed universe. More and more, there was a growing feeling among people in this era that perhaps this universe of cause and effect, though at one point created by God, was left alone by God to operate under its own um, mechanics. This is the sort of deist God popular in the 18th, and then as we even get into maybe some of the early 19th century. Darwin's own theology was shaped by these popular notions of his time, which, rooted in the natural theology of that era, saw God as the one who achieves his desired intentions for creation through unbroken law. Yet somewhere within this unbroken law, Natural theologians debated whether to emphasize and describe an inherently good and beautiful natural world or a natural world red in tooth and claw and marred by the presence of sin. These two competing perspectives in Darwin's day were maybe best exemplified by the work of William Paley and Thomas Malthus. Both Paley and Malthus were ordained Anglican clergymen, but each presented radically different theological interpretations of their scientific observations of the world. Paley's account of his study of biology are are filled with positive theological interpretations of his data, highlighting what he interpreted as good, effective design and, and marveling at the character of what he believed was a benevolent creator who even designed animals to feel pleasure. Paley's interpretation is sharply contrasted with uh, Malthus's An Essay on the Principle of Population. That work presented a world where struggle competition and starvation quote are the part are are the part of the normal cycle of the human condition due to human sinful nature and God's appointed design of struggle Malthus believed that this providential struggle was designed to eventually teach humans lessons in virtue and these two are really competing theological notions of that day. They're theological notions that have deep attachment and integration to the scientific disciplines. When Darwin voyaged out on the HMS Beagle to observe the natural world, it was it was the theology of Malthus, not Paley, that he employed towards his scientific description and interpretation. Quote, survival of the fittest, right? This is a a phrase that we have all heard. That that was no mere neutral scientific description, but rather a statement about natural theology that, quote, produced a new perspective on the moral character of nature. A worldview changed from harmony to a scene of struggle and discord, and that's from uh, the theologian J.W. McClendon. Again, the interpretive framework for how people were doing what we could call as natural theology. Natural theology is simply the a theological discipline that focuses on what what can we discern about God, just using general revelation uh, and, and exploring God's creation. Reflecting on Darwin's findings, one of his contemporaries, George Romains, 
struggled with what appeared to him to be an irreconcilable difference between the conceptions of God inferred from evolutionary biology in Darwin's language and the character of God championed in the Christian claims of special revelation. And this is really what many people struggle with today. How can a world that seems to be governed by survival of the fittest be the result of the intentional creation of a good God. As far as anyone knows, Darwin actually retained a belief in some form of the Christian creator as God. His Malthusian interpretive lens created a descriptive framework that presented such a violent and pessimistic natural theology that many began to see, just as Romains did, a competing theological narrative. The implications of Darwin's natural theology created a theodicy problem. Again, theodicy is the maybe the theological subdiscipline that deals with the problem of evil in light of God being all powerful and all good. Now, if God did create ex nihilo, if he did create out of nothing, and, and, and this is the method of unbroken law by which he made the world, where only the strong survive, then either the God of Darwin's natural theology is not good, or, is he, or he is not all-powerful, or he simply just doesn't exist. Or I guess one could even simply deny a role to natural theology at all which many uh, 20th century Protestant theologians ended up doing. One other method that has been popular among conservative evangelicals is, is to simply deny the validity of Darwin's findings or any other scientific explanation that conflicts with their theology. Though all of these responses are understandable, I believe there's a better way forward. The interconnected nature of all of our meaning-making endeavors, including theology and science, should challenge us to be more cognizant of the inherent interdisciplinary nature of our epistemological pursuits. That is to say, we should be cognizant that there is no theologically neutral, scientifically neutral, there is no neutral descriptions of the world. Whether we pick up a science textbook a theology textbook, a history book, a magazine. There's this interdisciplinary nature to all of our epistemological pursuits, and they're all rooted in different stories, stories that may or may not have alignment with God's big story, the meta-narrative of Scripture, the gospel. You know, cognitive dissonance occurs when the answers we receive in one field seemingly contradict the answers we have discovered in another. In my particular experience of ministry, many uh, evangelicals experience cognitive dissonance by seeking answers to life's toughest questions through science and theology, and they, they feel the need to abandon one for the other. In many cases, what is often assumed in Christian schools and in youth groups is the objectivity of that particular church or school's biblical hermeneutic and tradition and the, the near worthless deficiency of general revelation due to the fall. Though, as I talked about in the last podcast, this is kind of inconsistently applied. On one hand, some people, especially in this Protestant evangelical tradition, have gone the route of, you know, some 20th century Protestant theologians who just said, general revelation doesn't show us anything at all. It shouldn't really inform our perspective on what the world is like. But this is inconsistently applied because... They use gen- we use general revelation to read the Bible, to study the scriptures, to make sense of the sentences, to understand where 
particular peoples like King David or the Apostle Paul lived at what era in history, where in the world do they live? We, we can't just simply eliminate general revelation. And there's also this problem, and this is going to be, oh gosh, I feel like I say this every podcast, a podcast for another time, but there's also a, a theology of culture that has, over the last 30 years or so, assumed this culture war narrative, which is this culture war narrative is a consequence of a low view of general revelation and God's goodness in creation. And I get it, guys. I I, I have so much sympathy for my own story, my own experiences of feeling a sort of cognitive dissonance as I've tried to make sense of the world and and tried to understand God and the scriptures. and, And I've walked through this with so many people over the years as a teacher and someone in ministry, um, there can be this, oh gosh, uh, this feeling like I have to ditch this or I ditch that. You know, when when we as evangelicals are, are taught of the trustworthiness of general revelation as it applies to determining the historic validity of the gospels and the, the goodness of the scientific method for building a computer or fixing a car or determining the the speed of light but then they feel compelled to make their particular interpretation of genesis or maybe a, some other portion of the scripture supersede um, geology or biology or genetics because reason can't be trusted creates a really sharp experience of cognitive dissonance Again, it's an experience I've personally walked through and have navigated with many Christians, especially those that have uh, gone to Christian schools that have assumed this sort of culture war narrative. On the other side, metaphysical naturalists who actually, just like Neil deGrasse Tyson, have a high regard for general revelation, have presented themselves as people who have no convictional location but the objective high ground of science. Their position becomes tempting for disenfranchised evangelicals because though they deny the Christian God of creation, they may in many ways have a higher view of creation than evangelicals. This allows them to do a better job of being open to all the ways general revelation may correct wrongly held previous beliefs about how the universe works. You know, just recently, I, I, I've been taking my kids to some of the museums here in the Twin, City, Twin Cities, and I went to the Minnesota Science Museum, and they have these wonderful exhibits on the dinosaurs. And um, a question I, boy, I had never even thought of before was, I was wondering, well, when did, when did people first figure out that dinosaurs were around? And, and, and come to find out, it's only been in like the last uh, 100 to 200 years that people have actually been able to discover fossils. And it, it isn't to say that in previous eras in history that somebody maybe didn't dig up a fossil, but they, they didn't know what these things were. And it's only been actually in recent history that humans even discovered that dinosaurs existed. I mean... What do we do with that? If we have a low view of creation and a low view of of general revelation, we might be tempted to say, well, you know, there's no dinosaurs in the Bible. And yeah, you could talk about Leviathan and, you know, uh, and Rahab. But that's, a again, we've, I think we've addressed in other podcasts what that was to ancient Near Eastern people. Um, you might go, well, if it's, it's not in there, it, you know, to, that dinosaurs don't exist. Really? Uh, That's, again, a low view of general revelation that might result from having a low view of the goodness of God's creation and that God created creation to reveal things about himself and that he actually wants to be discovered. He wants this um, world that we inhabit to be a discoverable world. This is, again, what Newton believed, and it's what propelled this modern scientific era And it's the reason why we have better medicine and we have better tools at our disposal like what I'm using right now to communicate to you guys and 
we can look at that and go, that's good. God created a good universe, a good creation that has discoverable truths that we can employ towards the right care for creation. It's wonderful and it's beautiful. This is, uh, to me, very historic Christian ideals. And it's funny because some people maybe feel that though, again, they're not going to use this terminology. Some people might feel conflicted because they go, boy, when I when I listen to this scientist talk, it, it just seems like they have this high regard for the orderliness of the universe and that it's actually discoverable. And I hear person B talk and maybe they're a Christian and they go, well, they sound like they're very conspiratorial and that you can't trust reason because creation is so flawed and so marred by the presence of sin. It's so worthless and it creates this conflict. But again, the problem that we have again with metaphysical naturalists is they they might be open to or have a high regard of, quote, general revelation in some ways, but their epistemological openness is still limited to the confines of the naturalist meta narrative. It's still limited to the confines of this story that naturalists have told, which again does not provide a coherent framework for its own scientific rationalism. In, in epistemological humility, I believe we've got to recognize that all meta narratives, all big stories, have a theological component. The goal of our meaning-making endeavor should be the discovery and development of an internally consistent meta-narrative that corresponds with reality. Christians, we need not accept the false dichotomy of having to choose between faith and science because a robust Christian theology affirms the unity of truth and its ontological origin in God thus making us open to all the methods of viable epistemological discovery. Part of our historic Christian meta-narrative includes an acknowledgement that our convictional location is inevitably tainted by the presence of sin. Because of this, we should also acknowledge that human cognitive capacities and, and methodologies for discerning the truth contain the possibility of error. But this should not lead us to a hopeless relativism because we also believe, as the old hymnist writes, in a grace that exceeds our sin. The presence of sin makes us epistemologically humble, but not hopeless. Christians don't need to take using... I'm going to use some terminology uh, that you might not be familiar with, but I'll try to give some explanation. Christians, Christians don't need to take a reconstructionist approach towards scientific integration where we assign far too great of a value on the destructive ability of sin to destroy the capacity of humans, especially non-believers, to use the common grace given to all to rightfully discern truth. This sort of approach is, is, is maybe quite common when people reject the findings of geologists and biologists that maybe point to an old earth or they perhaps point to a uh, common descent of all living things and attempt to reconstruct alternative sciences from their own convictional theological location. This is certainly the approach to integration of, of science and theology that I, I had experienced growing up. And uh, it's been the predominant approach that exists in many K-12 through Christian schools. A better approach is what we could call the transformationalist approach. Which, in many ways, if if those of you are listening are, you know, maybe the, theology buffs is similar to Niebuhr's Christ transforming culture type or similar to perhaps J.W. McClendon's theology of narrative witness. This approach to integration, this transformationalist approach, 
places an appropriately high view on the goodness of God's creation and his common grace to all, with an appropriate emphasis on the limitations of our convictional location due to the presence of sin. Using this approach, we should recognize the unity of truth and its ontological source in the Trinitarian God. And we should humbly recognize that there's no reasonless or locationless interpretation of the special revelation of Scripture. The insights of modern geology and Darwinian evolution have appropriately challenged biblical interpreters to re-examine whether they truly understood texts like Genesis 1 to 3 correctly. This shouldn't be frightening to us. Again, if we approach this with humility, not relativism, but we approach it with humility and we go, what, what harm is it in re-exploring this? then I don't think we have anything to fear. This, this again, as soon as people start uh, maybe hearing this, they, they feel like this is, a, this is a challenge to God's word. But no, I'm not saying that. I'm still saying that uh, the inspired word of God is our normative and foundational source for all doctrine and conduct. And it's the thing that guides Christians. And it's perfect in our uh, in, in its prescriptions to us and perfect in, uh, in giving us a true picture of who God is and what he's like and that uh, and bearing witness to, uh, to Christ. But again, this isn't a challenge to God's word. We, we should just feel challenged in the limitations of our convictional location. These challenges have produced fruitful improvements in exegesis. Simultaneously, I think we have a role to help people as we disciple them, understand the the theological assumptions held by scientists who themselves do not occupy a theologically neutral convictional location, despite any claim to the contrary. This is especially relevant as scientists attempt to make prescriptive judgments on the way things ought to be, or i.e. the field of ethics. Scientific descriptions like Darwin's survival of the fittest can easily become scientific ethical prescriptions, as in the case of social Darwinism. The transformationalist challenges the flawed theological presuppositions within narratives that lead humanity away from God's perfect, great gospel story. And they present an alternative interpretive framework that is illumined by the light of Christ and the Bible. The light of Christ's revelation through the scriptures provides necessary ethical direction to the sciences and their applications. The findings of scientific inquiry are are, are neither wholly incompatible nor completely compatible with Christian theology because the inquirer is neither completely fallible nor infallible in their cognition or convictional location. It's the job of those of us committed to a meaning-making endeavor that seeks an understanding of reality compatible with reality as it is to be open to both the transformation of of Christ's revelation correcting our own misperceptions and to remain open to acting as agents of transformation to those ideas which are not part of God's unified truth. In conclusion, friends, I I, want to I want to encourage you that the process of dialogue, the process of uh, determining and, and, and trying to have a, a framework for understanding reality as God truly created it, an understanding of reality as is, I want to encourage you to never stop growing, to never stop having the possibility of your own convictional location being incomplete, flawed, or potentially even marred by the presence of sin. And the way that we do that is through open, 
non-combative and nuanced dialogue like I hope we're having here through this podcast. I want to invite you, as so many of you have, to reach out to me with your questions. Reach out to me with your challenges. Uh, You know, throughout this series, I've had some great feedback and, and even challenges from people that have said, hey, you know, I don't... I don't know if um, I don't know if I agree with the way you were presenting, um, you know, Genesis one, two, and three. Awesome! This is the way, and I, I welcome that because I recognize that even my own convictional location right now of where I see things is incomplete. It may be marred by even the presence of sin, but I'm limited, and so the way we grow beyond our particular location to perhaps see a more complete spectrum, to perhaps see a more complete view, is by having shared dialogue with each other, by exposing ourselves to people that maybe are even outside of our denominational tradition, or maybe they're even outside of our own Christian tradition. And we need to sit and we need to not close down the possibility of listening to someone like a Neil DeGrasse Tyson going, what is this guy, what does he have to say? What, in what ways is he maybe actually having such a high view of, of general revelation that I need to learn from? And in what ways would maybe someone like him, uh, could I be equipped to dialogue with them to help them see a way that maybe their own convictional location is limited? But again, I want to leave you here with the same question that we started today with. The question that came from Stephen Hawking's. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? In Colossians 1, Paul writes, starting here in verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together.